Yeah. Um, okay, I've uh, done the introduction, John. Uh, well, I'll do it again. Uh, Online Communist Forum, organised jointly by Labour Party Marxists and CPGB. And uh, today we're doing a week in politics. That is the week that's just finished. And um, Jack Conrad for the Provisional Central Committee. Go ahead, Jack. Okay. Um, well, it's going to be a bit of a disjointed uh, political report. Um, so a bit of this and a bit of that, uh, beginning with um, the billionaire so-called space race. Again, I know we commented on uh, Richard Branson, but we now have the, uh, the richest man in the world joining him in the um, astronaut uh, club. Um, meanwhile, of course, uh, um, there's a dispute about exactly who is um, an astronaut, um, you know, is getting into um, um, weightlessness, the definition, is it getting up over 50 miles? I don't know. Either way, what I would emphasize, uh, at least with Richard Branson and uh, Bezos at the uh, present time, is that um, the spacecraft uh, um, that uh, uh, Jeff Bezos was um, uh, launched up there, or, or you know, was up there in, is aptly named. Uh, I think it's something Shepard. Uh, this is after Alan uh, Shepard, the uh, first U.S. astronaut in uh, 1961, and uh, this followed, of course, Yuri Gagarin, uh, the first um, man in space. That's the official um, record. Uh, just about a month uh, before, but whereas uh, Yuri Gagarin uh, actually orbited uh, the world, and that took him, let me read it out, 108 minutes, uh, Shepard was only up there 15 uh, minutes. In other words, he did a Richard Branson or a Jeff uh, Bezos. Um, so there's nothing particularly um, high-tech, innovative, cutting edge, uh, about the latest um, efforts. Um, it's very strange on, on one level, um, you know, sort of period of history uh, that we're in. We've got these um, billionaires going in for the most um, extravagant um, display of waste. Um, you know, I don't know how much uh, uh, blue origin, how much that um, program uh, cost, but uh, uh, I suspect a, a quite a lot more than uh, Richard uh, Branson. And, you know, we're talking about uh, a billion and above here. Um, so I do find it rather strange uh, that people are prepared to spend so much. Um, I mean, whatever you hear, in terms of how it changed Richard Branson's life. And then you've got the recordings on, um, on the um, Shepard um, space capsule. But I mean, in reality, what this is, is um, weightlessness and a, and a view of the fact that the earth is curved. Um, you know, uh, sorry guys, big deal. Um, so, uh, I'm also, you know, brought to mind that later on this year up in Glasgow, there's the uh, COP26, um, you know, the summit um, dealing with the um, climate and just looking out my window uh, at the moment, it's been um, bucketing down over there in the United States. There's been huge fires. Uh, there's been huge flooding uh, in China. And I'm just sort of thinking that, um, you know, when we're talking about limiting um, CO2 uh, emissions, exactly how much it actually takes to get an individual up there into uh, near space for their 15 minute uh, thrill, my guess would be, and someone can look it up, uh, that you're dealing with a factor of a thousand plus uh, you know, that it would be to get, you know, to fly to Australia. Uh, this seems to be the, um, you know, the billionaire's contribution 
uh, to the climate. And of course, uh, what we're dealing with here uh, isn't just um, the indulgence of uh, billionaires. Uh, with both of them, what they seem to be proposing, certainly when it comes to uh, Richard Branson, is some sort of commercial model. In other words, instead of just having a one-off when you uh, go into near space, what he'll be talking about uh, is regular uh, uh, flights, not in order to get anywhere any quicker, uh, but simply for the thrill uh, of going into uh, near, near space. Um, okay, uh, just moving on slightly um, uh, in that respect, um, it's also worth um, noting the uh, firing of um, the um, engines on the um, Falcon Heavy. This is Space uh, X, and um, uh, it's due uh, to actually launch a uh, capsule, not only into Earth orbit, um, but actually all the way to Jupiter and um, Europa, this is one of uh, Jupiter's moons. It's the one that's frozen that various scientists say, well, it might contain life, it might do. And if we found it, that would be absolutely fascinating. But what I wanted to do really is to separate out uh, what I view as um, interesting scientific research. On the one side, I exploring um, the moons of uh, Jupiter which is about to me human curiosity uh, and about thrill seeking on the other, which really does strike me as, uh, you know, the equivalent of a fairground uh, ride, um, but hugely more expensive and hugely more uh, ecologically uh, dubious. Uh, of course, what most space uh, is about uh, is spy satellites, um, you know, that, 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 that accounts for the majority of um, launches. That's actually what uh, um, the space race was really uh, about. So when we had the first, uh, the world's first uh, artificial satellite, uh, Sputnik, what that announced um, was one, um, that um, uh, we now entered into the age of the um, ICBM, the Intercontinental Ballistic Missile, um, and spy uh, craft. In other words, it didn't take a, a U-2 uh, to go over uh, somewhere and risk being shot down. You could do it from space. Uh, you couldn't shoot these things down, but you could also deliver a bomb uh, without uh, a bomber. That's actually what Sputnik uh, was really about. Um, so it wasn't about I should put it at an advance on human civilization. Uh, it was about the um, advance on the means of destruction. Okay, just lastly on all of that, of course, what um, uh, Elon Musk has in mind uh, for his um, Falcon um, um, Heavy uh, isn't just um, getting 178 million from NASA uh, to deliver a, um, a payload that's going to go to Jupiter. Um, this, this is the rocket that's meant to launch his um, colonization uh, of Mars. Um, I have to say that if you want to go to Mars, you're very welcome, uh, but it does strike me as uh, not only hugely uh, risky, uh, but completely barking. Um, you know, the, the, the culture that we've grown up in uh, really does project space as if it's the equivalent of uh, America. Um, it, it is, it, it's no such thing. Uh, even the most friendly planet, which is Mars, is utterly alien uh, for human beings. And um, uh, the idea that um, this is our natural uh, habitat um, is, as I say, I, I think it, it really does show um, a failure to actually engage with uh, rescuing, uh, making fit for human beings and nature, uh, the planet that we were actually evolved on and are most suited to. Anyway, uh, with that over, moving on. Uh, next one is uh, Dominic Cummings. No, I didn't sit through uh, the interview with uh, 
Laura Koonsberg. Um, I read the headlines, I read the various reports, and quite frankly, I was uh, underwhelmed. Um, you know, yes, it lifts a, a veil, it lifts a curtain on life in Downing Street, but does anyone really think that uh, Boris Johnson's um, Downing Street is that different uh, to Margaret Thatcher or, or Tony Blair or going back earlier? Uh, to people like uh, Harold Wilson with his uh, kitchen cabinet. Uh, I can't believe it. Uh, I do think that when you look at uh, bourgeois politicians, um, you know, they're dealing with a 24-hour news cycle. Um, I think that existed uh, under Wilson. Um, I think that existed under uh, Thatcher. I don't think that there was a, a single master plan. I think there's an awful lot of muddling going uh, through an awful lot of decisions made on the hoof uh, and also all sorts of, um, you know, what would be viewed if you take it out of context, tasteless jokes and uh, all the rest of it. But the idea uh, that Dominic Cummings seems to have that the SPADs, the special advisors, somehow had the power to remove Boris Johnson, I think is delusional. Um, I think that when it comes to power, uh, the actual civil service is far more powerful uh, than special um, um, advisors. Um, it's special advisors that are cast aside, um, you know, casually, not uh, prime ministers. Anyway, uh, that one um, I dealt with. Okay, on the slightly more serious side now, um, Pegasus. This um, Israeli uh, spyware. Why more serious? Why? Because what we're dealing with here isn't the uh, installation of spyware on what you might call the usual suspects, i.e. Uh, what it says on the tin uh, of Pegasus, i.e. criminals, drug lords, uh, terrorists. That's who it's meant to spy on. But what we've had um, is this going right to the top and that includes the, the French president and who knows who else. Uh, that is something uh, different. Um, and what's um, interesting about it is who the hell, um, you know, installed it on um, Macron's um, phone. Um, you know, I sort of understand it when it comes to the Americans spying on Merkel. Uh, so was this the United States? Was this Israel? Um, you know, who else? Because this apparently, this, this technology was only sold, as I understand it, to state actors. Right? It wasn't sold to commercial uh, companies. So um, uh, this has to be a state uh, uh, doing it. And I just look at the, um, the list of uh, state actors that um, uh, are involved in this uh, Pegasus scandal, obviously investigated by Amnesty International and The Guardian and a, and a, and a consortium of, um, I think it's 16, 17 um, um, similar um, um, outfits. Um, anyway, the, the uh, state actors that I've got listed down really tell you something about is Israel's foreign policy because um, uh, it isn't just a question of selling it to state actors it has to be signed off by the Israeli government itself. So the investigation that the Guardian and uh, um, Amnesty International and other such bodies have done really tells us something about Israel's foreign policy. And of course, what it's come up with is amongst the customers of uh, Pegasus is Saudi Arabia, uh, of course, which um, has until recently, you know, um, at least purportedly Put itself over as a, a champion of um, Islamic uh, values. Um, so it's interesting that um, Israel has um, agreed that uh, Saudi Arabia get this technology. Then we have Azerbaijan, uh, the United uh, uh, Arab Emirates, Morocco. Um, so interesting uh, uh, actors there. And of course, once you say Saudi Arabia, uh, you don't really go that Saudi Arabia is investigating drug lords. And if it's investigating terrorists, uh, I suspect that what that means is fellow members of the, you know, the House of Sword. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the reality of terrorism. 
uh, in Saudi Arabia. But no, what we know uh, is that uh, the poor bugger, the journalist that was dismembered in uh, Istanbul, um, his partner, uh, her phone uh, actually had this uh, uh, spyware uh, installed on it. And, you know, well, that's obviously Saudi Arabia. That's obviously uh, the government of Saudi Arabia. And, and you go down the list of these uh, countries and clearly what we're dealing with is spying on political opponents, people who are a nuisance uh, uh, to uh, the government, but also people that uh, Israel wants to court, uh, wants to buy in uh, in terms of um, its uh, foreign policy, uh, not least um, its version of um, peace um, in the Middle East where um, uh, the Palestinians uh, don't even get their um, Palestinian authority, um, but just basically, uh, you know, get what the equivalent of a reservation um, 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 is, you know, in, in America, Canada, and all the rest of it. That's really what um, Israel wants these countries uh, to buy um, into. Okay, um, just to add a little point on that, uh, this company, um, NSO, that's produced this, of course, um, is, is full of stuff, full of, um, um, you know, um, computer PhDs um, who were previously in the Israeli uh, defense uh, force. Clearly, what we're talking about it is, is an industrial military uh, complex um, in Israel uh, that's actually a world player in its own right. It's not simply the case anymore uh, that the Israeli armed forces rely on um, a foreign sponsor. Uh, the original sponsor, of course, of the Project of Israel uh, was Britain after the Balfour uh, Declaration. Uh, then it was actually France. Um, so, you know, in the 1967 war, France was fighting with um, French aircraft, French tanks. Uh, that's what took, uh, you know, the armies of um, the combined armies of Syria, uh, Jordan, um, Egypt apart. It was French uh, technology uh, that uh, Israel was uh, uh, using. Now, of course, it's American technology. So Israel has American planes, American tanks. But also when it comes to drones, when it comes to electronic warfare, uh, they're an actor in it in their own right and one of the biggest exports of israel uh, isn't orange juice or um you know that sort of stuff from the kibbutz uh, it's precisely the means of oppression uh, either crushing demonstrators or drones which will um, uh, target uh, um, um, individuals or groups for uh, taking them out or spyware uh, this is this is uh, stuff that's developed uh, against the Palestinians and, and sold um, on the world market. So the company NSO is worth uh, 1.5 billion. And according to the Financial Times, the CEO of uh, this organization is quite amazed how successful it's been, um, simply because um, thus far in the cat and mouse game uh, that there's been um, between um, the spires um, and those whose um, um, devices, such as this, uh, that are being used to spy on people, um, the spires, the spies have stayed one stage ahead. So Apple, for example, will close a loophole uh, in their system. And there you are back in Israel, uh, these um, computer uh, geniuses uh, will be working frantically to find another hole in the system. And thus far, what's kept the company going is they've always been successful. They've always found uh, a way through. Now, I think it's just worthwhile us reflecting on this, not because of uh, the details of this um, uh, particular Pegasus uh, technology, but to actually think about our program and our uh, strategy uh, for revolution. Because a lot of people, you know, think um, that when it comes to Bolshevism, uh, the great success of Bolshevism was in its secrecy, uh, was in its, um, you know, Iskra agents. Um, 
you know, it, it's military discipline um, and all the rest of it. Um, I, I actually beg to differ. So although you had that stage of uh, Bolshevism, the aim always was uh, to actually engage in mass politics and open uh, politics uh, to actually gain a mass support. Uh, and I think that this sort of technology uh, tells you um, that, that they know what we're doing. Uh, they know everything about you if they, if they need to know uh, uh, about you. So all this stuff that we get in the labor movement and on the left, uh, uh, you know, about, um, for example, the SWP conference being held in camera. Uh, well, they're hiding it from the membership. They're hiding it from the rest of the left. They're certainly not hiding anything from the state. Um, when, we're, when we're told about negotiations on the Labour left and um, them all agreeing to abide by the Chatham House rule, uh, i.e. you aren't allowed to talk about it outside this meeting, well the state knows all about it and I can guarantee you that uh, Keir Starmer with his contacts with the state knows all about it. What you're actually doing is conspiring against the membership. What you're actually doing is conspiring against the activists and not letting them into who stands for what and uh, what, who's proposing uh, what. Um, so no, it's not secrecy uh, that gives us power. It's actually our ideas and our ideas gripping uh, the minds of uh, millions uh, of people. That's where our real strength uh, uh, lies. Um, so I think that uh, all, all these attempts to um, uh, keep uh, meeting secret. Um, um, all of this is um, delusional. Yes, of course, um, and I'll come to this now, uh, we're in the situation uh, of where four organizations on the Labour left have been banned. And yes, um, we ought to take some elementary uh, security measures um, here. But the key question has to be uh, for the left to go out and convince the, the rank and file, the mass membership of the Labour Party, the mass membership of the trade unions, um, the working class, the wider population uh, itself. That's the key uh, to, to our politics and to our uh, political uh, success. I'll come back to the Labour Party um, um, in a minute. Just to move on very quickly to um, Khuzestan, which is the Arab region in the south of um, Iran. Um, there's been a crackdown, according uh, to the media and according to Amnesty International, um, at least eight people um, have been uh, uh, killed. Thus far, the regime hasn't moved against the oil workers. Their strike continues to grow. Uh, indeed, it's been added to uh, by sugarcane uh, workers. Uh, we should uh, expect the state in Iran uh, to have something along the lines of Pegasus, whether it's as sophisticated and as uh, gee whizzy uh, as Pegasus, that's another question, but we should expect them uh, to be listening in uh, that whatever security measures you take, they are not going to be enough. The key question about the oil strikes is precisely that they have spread, uh, that the narrow sectionalism has been overcome in terms of contract workers. They are striking as contract workers, not just against the particular company uh, that you're contracted to. And indeed their strike has spread to non-oil uh, workers, but also it's rallied to it uh, wider sections in terms of solidarity. So for example, teachers, uh, journalists, uh, you know, masses of people. This is, this is the key. Uh, uh, to the success um, of, of this strike. Just a couple of other uh, uh, points. Um, while this strike is of an, an enormous um, um, significance, I don't think that we want to be describing the situation at the present time in Iran as being on the brink of revolution. Um, you know, for there to be a revolutionary situation 
there needs to be mass discontent. That's absolutely right. But, you know, knowing a little bit about Iran, certainly since 1979, what I would say is the regime itself has stood atop uh, a, a volcano of discontent from the very beginning. You know, if I uh, look up, um, you know, the theocratic regime, uh, I don't know whether this was in 1979 or 1980, but the images that I have in my, in my mind are not only uh, the mass demonstrations in support of Khomeini, uh, but directly after Khomeini comes to power, massive, huge demonstrations by women uh, against the imposition uh, of the veil. And certainly if we look at uh, Iran, we need to bear in mind uh, that this was a society very much along the lines of um, Ataturk and Turkey, uh, that when it came to the cities, we're dealing with a, a secular uh, population, uh, a population uh, that wasn't um, locked in uh, to religion. And so therefore the imposition of the veil provoked, as I said, a huge reaction uh, uh, from women. And one can just carry on um, that in terms of resistance to that regime, uh, we're talking about very, very wide sections uh, of the population that are opposed uh, to it. So the key question uh, when it comes to a revolutionary situation isn't discontent. It's a split in the regime. It's, it's to use Lenin's phrase, it's that they cannot rule in the old way, uh, that there's a division between, for example, those that want to crack down using force and those that want to give concessions. Um, and we saw a crack in the regime after all, um, you know, back then with the green movement, for example. But is there any such equivalent split now? I really don't think so. So although large numbers refused to participate in the last uh, presidential election, what was revealed wasn't a split within the regime. The regime put in power the president that they wanted and uh, the so-called factions of the regime, the so-called reformists, so-called conservatives, both accepted that result. And indeed, you really have to ask whether those um, descriptions of reformist and um, conservative actually fit um, the situation uh, at the present time. So yes, the oil workers strike is of great importance. This is a, a strike that's overcome sectionalism. It's raised political demands. Uh, it's gained wider uh, support. Uh, all of that is highly significant. Uh, it could trigger a split uh, in the regime. We don't know, but that split isn't there now. Um, and I think we need a, um, you know, a sense of proportion. I, as I said, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen the day after. At the moment, though, uh, it is important for workers in Britain, in their trade unions, in their Labour Party uh, constituencies, in their other organisations, to get messages uh, to the strikers. It does matter uh, to them that the world is watching. So in other words, if there is a clampdown, uh, the regime uh, pays something uh, for it. I've got uh, my lights flickering at the moment. I don't know whether that's the uh, lightning going on outside my window. Okay, just moving on. This is just a comment on um, the politics of the pandemic because uh, this is an interesting medical question. Here we are, a new disease arises, but what we're dealing with in terms of the COVID-19 pandemic isn't just a medical uh, question, it's a political question. And I don't know when that last happened. I mean, it's a new one on me, I have to say. Uh, you know, when normally we get um, a flu um, epidemic, okay, we get, in Britain at least, uh, the NHS is in crisis. Well, every winter, the NHS is in crisis. You know, uh, they've cut down on the number of beds. They've run the NHS as a sort of just-in-time factory, crazy decision that was begun uh, under a Labour government, under Tony Blair, uh, uh, in fact. So we're used to that. And OK, 
That's a form of politics, yes. But what we're dealing with here uh, with COVID-19 is, is the politicization um, of this pandemic, not simply on the basis of um, NHS spending, um, NHS um, waiting lists. Um, what we're dealing with is, is, is symbols. And um, what we've got is a sort of very, very um, amorphous uh, um, collection on the right. And I think he, he is on the right, although I'm not quite sure, um, that is treating this question as one of liberty, uh, as one of somehow, um, if you take uh, protective measures uh, for yourself, and for others, such as, for example, wearing a mask or even getting vaccinated, somehow you're engaging in Nazi-like uh, practices. Somehow you're taking away someone's liberty. Liberty to do what? Um, you know, if you take COVID-19, it ain't Ebola. I agree. It, but it ain't flu either. It's 10 times more deadly at least, and that's variant A you know, the original Chinese uh, version of it. How much more deadly, uh, you know, Delta is, I don't know. But what we're dealing with is a disease now uh, that can um, transmit very easily on the air. Um, it uh, still, yes, uh, the, the more likely people that go into hospital or die from it are old gets uh, like myself. But we're also dealing with a situation, of course, that now with old gits like myself, fully vaccinated, who it's going to pick out in terms of its survival uh, are going to be the non-vaccinated. And amongst them, from what we understand, something like one in 10 of these people who get it, and that's not going to hospital, that's not going on, you know, in terms of some intensive care unit, one in 10 or thereabouts get long COVID. Now we don't know how long long COVID is. And I think it's defined as something like three months at the moment. Uh, but you know, we, we've got cases of people who got COVID at the very beginning of this pandemic, who still can't walk properly, who still can't breathe uh, properly. And that that's going to matter uh, to young people. You know, if you're 15, 16, 20, 25, you can get long COVID and we don't know how long this is going to affect you. So that clearly matters economically. It clearly matters to you if you damn well uh, get it. So, you know, we've had this politicization. So just look at a picture. I know they're not crowded yet, but have a look at uh, a recent picture of the chamber of the House of Commons. And on the one side, you, of course, you've got the opposition, you've got the, the, the Labour Party uh, benches. We know they're a bunch of right-wing bastards. I know all that. But there they are, they're all masked. And you look uh, on the other side, the government benches, and they're crowded together, and they're not masked. Right? Um, this is what's going on. And I, I just find that, uh, quite frankly, somewhat surreal when we're talking about... Um, a disease, you know, I mean, would someone say I've got the right, if I've got Ebola uh, to go around into a crowded place and kiss people? I mean, you, you, you know, anyone who suggested it would say that you should be confined somewhere um, if you had uh, uh, such an idea. I mean, I do remember, because I live right near a hospital that, that deals with these uh, Ebola cases, that we did have a nurse come back, and I don't know all, all the ins and outs of it, but came back with Ebola and I don't know if she infected anybody, but she was in the hospital over the road from me. And we had, uh, you know, the media parked outside and all the rest of it. She was one of these uh, nurse heroes out there in Africa that then came back with the disease as some sort of devil uh, uh, figure. But yeah, she was confined. <laughs> you know, she was not locked up, but there you are. No one went anywhere near her. Uh, people only went near her fully masked, fully with, um, you know, gloves on and often, you know, through a, you know, special bloody control unit. Um, why people are treating uh, COVID-19 as if it's some sort of, um, you know, libertarian uh, test, uh, as I say, I, I do find strange, but that's what's going on. So I wanted to comment on the 
demonstrations in, in Paris and in France. Um, I'm not saying it's universal, but um, it, uh, uh, the demonstration there, according to the British press, was organized by the Yellow Vests, uh, but also supporters of National Rally, the old National Front, the supporters of Marine Le Pen. So uh, the name of this demonstration uh, over in France was uh, Les Patriots. And you look at the demonstration, uh, lots of uh, tricolors, as you would expect, but also uh, the double cross, uh, which, as I understand it, is the symbol of Vichy France. Also, what's notable about the demonstration, no dark faces, uh, which is interesting in Paris, no Arab looking faces that I could see. And I trawled through all the pictures. Well, yeah, exactly. So what we've got is a demonstration in essence uh, uh, by the National Front, by the National Rally, by the supporters of Marine Le Pen, who are using the restrictions uh, that Macron is insisting on, you know, such as uh, if you're going to a concert, you've got to prove that you're not infectious. If you're going to a restaurant, you've got to show that you've been double vaccinated or, or other stuff like that. Now, we can get into details about such questions. I mean, things like if you're working in a care home, if you're working in a hospital, you've got to be vaccinated. Well, personally, I really don't see the problem. I can see why, you know, if you had a particular medical condition uh, and you said, well, I can't get vaccinated because, because, well, don't go near old people then uh, if you've got that disease. I mean, that's what I would say. So as I understand it, for example, if you're a surgeon, um, you're, you, you've got to have a, an injection You've got to show, as I understand, I'm not sure of the details, but you've got to show that you haven't got uh, hepatitis, uh, for example, right? Which I think, you know, is, is reasonable. Um, you know, if I was undergoing a, a minor operation and the surgeon said, oh, it doesn't matter, you know, I've got hepatitis, oh, I've just cut myself, oh, I've just infected you. Um, it doesn't strike me as a good idea. Same way with granny uh, in the care home. I wouldn't want carers who are looking after granny to come in uh, if they got COVID-19. I don't see it as a big uh, imposition. So we've got this cultural uh, divide, we've got the politicization um, uh, of COVID. And of course, what that goes with uh, are all sorts of fantastical conspiracy uh, theories. And, you know, we can go into them. Uh, and it is worthwhile Marxists uh, exploring why people believe crazy ideas. So for example, um, this is a big conspiracy by Bill Gates to inject us uh, with micro something or others that control our brains. Well, sorry. Um, why COVID-19? Oh, anyway, you know, I, I don't want to go there. But it is interesting why people believe that. Ditto, didn't we have it at the beginning that COVID-19 was a result of 5G? You know, the, the masks that they're now putting up give give us uh, how on earth a mask uh, could give you um, a virus is beyond me but we are dealing with um, scientific illiteracy that's obvious but we're also uh, dealing with people uh, that are clearly um, what's what's the word that Trotsky used about uh, the fascist base um, the enraged, <laughs> the enraged petty bourgeoisie, or we've got an enraged, irrational uh, section um, of the population uh, that are capable, capable of believing more or less um, anything um, at the present time, which is a worrying um, uh, feature. Okay, so two more items uh, before I finish. So we're well on time, 39 minutes in. First one is, yes, the Labour Party, which I've already mentioned. So, yes, we've had four organisations banned, and that's Labour Against the Witch Hunt. It's uh, Labour in Exile Network. Uh, there's an organisation called Resist, which is, um, has been established by Chris Williamson, who's a former Labour MP who now urges people to leave the Labour Party. And last but not least, uh, an organization called Socialist Appeal, which is affiliated to the international Marxist tendency, which has its origins in militant tendency. So comrades in British um, politics will know all about militant. 
it was one of the most successful um, left-wing factions um, in the Labour Party in the 1970s um, um, and 80s. And um, it had two and a half MPs. Um, it, <laughs> at one point, it purportedly had more full-timers uh, than the Labour Party itself. You know, so it was a very, very um, successful um, organisation. Anyway, it split over the question of whether to stay in the Labour Party or to leave. It's not true that all of them were kicked out. Some of them were kicked out um, and some of them stayed out. Uh, but what the split was about is whether the Labour Party had become no different to the US Democrat Party. Uh, and those that said, well, well, that hasn't yet been decided. And you have to say, looking back on it, uh, whatever's going on now, clearly with the Corbyn uh, leadership, uh, that surely disproved the idea uh, that the Labour Party was no different to all intents and purposes than the US uh, uh, Democrat uh, Party. Just a little note on that. What, what I find unfortunate uh, about socialist appeal, uh, if you look at their coverage of this purge, they say socialist appeal is being banned. Well, that's quite right. And then they and they say and three other organizations and sorry, comrades, but you don't even name them. You know, why can't you name the three other organizations? What's so difficult about naming those organizations? It reminds me of the report in Socialist Worker of the Batley and Spen by-election uh, that couldn't mention the word, you know, George Galloway. You know, this is a significant silence. You have to make an effort not to mention uh, these organizations. What's that all about? Is it that you want to make this just about yourselves. If so, this is a big mistake on your uh, um, uh, behalf, because in my view, at least, what um, um, Starmer's done is in reality pick out minnows. Uh, it's nice uh, to uh, believe uh, that organizations such as Socialist Appeal and labor against the witch hunt, labor in exile. I mean, come on, then when we get to resist, I mean, does it really exist? You know, have been such a nuisance, such a bloody um, um, enemy to the labor right uh, that they say we must purge uh, this organization. This is, this is, this is delusional. Uh, the reality is that these organizations have been picked on actually uh, because they are small. Uh, because they are not effective. And I'm not saying that in a nasty way. I'm not saying that in a mocking way. I, I personally uh, support and very much admire the work of uh, Labour Against the Witch Hunt and Labour in Exile. Um, I've got respect. Uh, I think they're profoundly wrong politically, but I've got respect for the dedication of uh, the comrades in Socialist Appeal and their hard work. Uh, yes, yes, yes. But we've been picked on, comrades, uh, precisely because we're small, not because we're strong and powerful and represent some imminent threat uh, to the Labour right. It's not us uh, that are deselecting um, um, MPs. It's not us uh, that are sweeping all before us uh, when it comes to NEC uh, elections. So, for example, uh, when it comes to um, uh, the Labour Left Alliance, it supported a, a candidate, a number of candidates indeed, for the last NEC Canada, uh, um, elections, Labour Party's National Executive Committee. And I think uh, comrade Roger Silverman got something like 5% or something like that, very credible uh, performance. But that's all it was, and that, that was easily the best. So why have these organisations been selected? I think precisely because they're weak, but also because they have a symbolic role. That here's Starmer uh, uh, killing off uh, uh, the left. And of course, uh, what we need to um, see that in the context of is the run up to Brighton, uh, the Labour Party's conference, whether that will be live, semi-live, online, I don't know, uh, but clearly, he can't turn around and said, I got rid of four organizations back there in summer. I've dealt with the left. Um, the, you know, the, this, um, this, this poison 
has now been purged uh, from you know the the system of the Labour Party. No, more will be needed, and more will come. So already there's talk, isn't there, of other organisations being named. My own guess, and it purely a guess, I cannot imagine uh, Keir Starmer not wanting uh, to have his version of um, Neil Kinnock doing uh, militant tendency or um, uh, Tony Blair doing clause four. Uh, and if, if there is an audience and someone heckles him, um, he, he will have it in his script. Uh, and my suspicion is he isn't simply going to be um, tackling other small organizations. In my view, he's gonna go for such symbols as Jeremy Corbyn, that Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party was a disaster and there's no way uh, he should be given back the whip, he should be expelled or something along those lines. That's what I would expect. I would also expect uh, uh, Starmer to go after momentum, which I don't know how many members it now claims, but if we said 20 or 30,000, um, it will be of that sort of region. Now the Labour right have got a completely wrong idea about momentum, of course, you know, that they bought into this press story that it was Corbyn's Praetorian Guard. Now it's true uh, that the, you know, the momentum organisation has a lot more sway uh, than organisations like um, Labour Against the Witch Hunt or Labour in Exile Network or Labour Left Alliance. That's certainly true. Um, nevertheless, it's a pretty hollow organisation. Um, nonetheless, I, I, that's the sort of um, um, level of symbolism I would expect to be on display uh, in Brighton. Now, I come to a couple of other uh, points. I've heard it said, and I understand why, but I think it's profoundly mistaken, uh, that um, Starmer is simply out to get the left. Um, I just don't buy it. You know, Starmer is now perfectly safe uh, when it comes to a threat from the left. You know, the, at the moment under Labour Party rules, uh, the so-called Corbynites couldn't get enough signatures together uh, to trigger an election, a, a leadership um, election. That if we look at constituencies, well, they're being closed down, you know, left, right and centre. Um, members are being expelled, members are being intimidated. And if we look at the trade union movement, in the majority of cases, the big unions are now safely in the hands of the right. The only exception to that when it comes to big unions is Unite, which is the second largest union in Britain uh, and an important affiliate, of course, to the Labour Party. And what we have going on this month is elections for the General Secretary of the Unite to replace Len McCluskey. And it looks like at the moment um, that Gerald Coyne, the candidate of the right, has a very good chance uh, of winning against a, div a divided left who've got two uh, candidates. Crazy, uh, yes. Okay, the, the, but the point would still be there, even if we have the victory of the continuity candidate uh, in Unite. Um, the fact that um, um, Starmer was able to get uh, through the banning of these four organisations with a comfortable majority on the Labour Party's NEC, that reflects the balance uh, now within uh, the Labour Party. It's gone from where it was pretty evenly balanced uh, under uh, Corbyn uh, to now where it's solidly, um, you know, safe as far as uh, Starmer is concerned. I can't see why Starmer uh, would be so obsessed uh, with doing the left as if it's some sort of uh, real um, real uh, big threat. It, it isn't, it's a future threat, I accept that, but it's not a threat at the present time. So why is Starmer doing it? Well, in my view, he's doing it for the same reason as Tony Blair did clause four. This is a, a display um, in front of the public, but crucially, it's a display in front of the bourgeois media, the bourgeois opinion uh, makers. And it's also a display uh, in front of uh, the US hegemon, uh, that I'm a true Atlanticist, 
uh, I'm a truly reliable uh, ally. Uh, that's why we have the anti-Semitism campaign. There isn't a big problem of anti-Semitism to say the obvious uh, in the Labour Party, but there is a Palestinian uh, question. Uh, there is a hostility uh, to how Israel treats the Palestinians. That's absolutely true. And that's what's going on uh, at the present time. So expect more bans, uh, expect more expulsions. Uh, but this is about Keir Starmer uh, trying to aim to get into number 10. Now, he might not succeed. Uh, that's certainly true. Um, but that's what it's about. Um, this isn't about him um, just doing the left <laughs> for, for, for no apparent reason. I, I can't work out why comrades uh, think they, um, that the left is such a, a threat to him. Okay. Um, right. Good news time now. Finished uh, with all that. And uh, you can read this story in a number of different sources. You can pick it up. Uh, either directly or indirectly, as I understand it, in the Morning Star. There's some sort of reference to it. Um, the front page of the social imperialist um, paper Solidarity, the paper of the AWL, actually headlines uh, this story. And this is a report that was commissioned by the Institute of Economic Affairs. Now, this is a right-wing um, institution, and what they've been doing is uh, surveying, and this is an opinion poll survey, they've been surveying uh, people between 16 and 34. Now this is two generations. So it's the 16 to 22 year olds is one category. I can't know what they're called. Are they the millennials or something like that? And then there's the 23 to 34 uh, year olds. And clearly the, um, you know, the who commissioned the poll shows in terms of the questions they're answering and how uh, the questions are framed. Uh, either way, it should make, well, it makes good reading as far as we are concerned and very worrying reading as far as they are uh, concerned. So we have the very pleasing statistic of when this whole cohort, if that's the right word, but this whole um, generation or two generations, 16 to 34 were asked, I don't know what the question was, but here's the answer. 67% of them, 67, said that they want to live under a socialist economy, right? A socialist economy, right? And they call the, the, the name of this, um, what they call these people, they call it millennial socialism. And uh, the thesis of the authors of this opinion um, um, survey and you know, in terms of writing it up, they say that this is not some fleeting fashion. So they say it's not like my generation, you know, of the people who are politicized in the 60s, um, who apparently all stopped being political, apart from nutters like myself and a few other people that you'll see uh, when we see people's pictures. I didn't, it wasn't fleeting for me, I tell you. But what they're saying is that this is very deeply embedded in, in um, you know, the consciousness uh, of um, the, this this um, 16 to um, 34 year old uh, generation. Uh, and what they're worried about is that what is sort of um, a generational question at the moment becomes mainstream tomorrow as uh, old gets like myself, um, you know, approach um, death, <laughs> wink out of existence. Uh, these people will take over and they're worried uh, that this will become uh, the mainstream uh, opinion um, of tomorrow. So you look at some other questions. What's the cause of the housing crisis? 78% and the, I think they're right. It's capitalism, capitalism. And of course, you think about it. Uh, this is the generation who, you know, now as a norm, if you've got a job and you've got a reasonably paying job and you're full-time employed, you know, in Britain, it was the norm um, to buy a house, you know, not account, you know, this isn't about council accommodation anymore. That's sort of gone largely. So 78% of this, uh, um, this section of the population blame capitalism uh, for the housing crisis. Similar proportions say that they favor 
the renationalization of the rails, water, energy, same sort of uh, percentage oppose the privatization and uh, um, the, the private sector in the NHS. And to me, one of the loveliest uh, answers is that, do you think that uh, socialism is a good idea, but has been badly done in the past? Similar proportions say yes. And I have to put myself in the same category. Exactly. Socialism is a great idea. Uh, it's an idea that we remain loyal to in spite of the fact that it's been badly done in the past. Now, of course, for any Marxist, we understand why it's been badly done in the past. We don't believe in socialism in one country. We don't think that backward countries uh, can transition uh, to socialism, to communism. Nonetheless, uh, what we've seen is a 20th century with many uh, uh, full starts, many failed uh, attempts, and yet we still have a, um, a majority of this generation uh, that is committed uh, to that sort of idea. Now, we readily accept that when um, they're talking about socialism, I suspect that they're talking about socialism very much along the lines of the Institute of Economic Affairs, i.e. nationalization equals um, socialism, um, you know, that sort of type of stuff. So if we wanted to use a phrase, uh, we're dealing with a social democratic consciousness um, but on the other hand, I don't know, because if we look at uh, what's got these people politicized, it's things like Black Lives Matter, it's Extinction Rebellion, it's Corbyn. Now, what I'd finish with is the task that the left has to connect with this generation, because at the moment, yes, this, this um, um, consciousness exists, but it exists as an amorphous mass it's not organized and too many of this generation when they joined the Labour Party and they did join the Labour Party in very large numbers went to their first meeting and also then went to their last meeting and I'm sure that was the right tactic uh, that we're going to bore people to death we're going to be obstructive and dull to the point you want to commit suicide. Because what we had in terms of the influx into the Labour Party, the mass influx into the Labour Party at the time when Jeremy Corbyn was a candidate who looked like he was going to win, at least according to me from the very beginning, and after Jeremy Corbyn had won the leadership, we had two um, blocks uh, who joined the Labour Party. You know, those under 25, huge numbers. And then we had um, huge numbers who came back, people who'd resigned over things like the Iraq war, uh, privatization and all the rest of it. These people left. But of course, when they rejoined the Labour Party and they went to their first meeting, they basically said, I know the ropes. I know they're right. I know that this is going to be a long haul. Um, so we have a generation, I think, who are looking for easy answers and they were looking for Jeremy Corbyn to be the equivalent of uh, a man on a white horse some sort of savior um, well from our angle there are no saviors from on high uh, that the answer is organization now what I would say is an awful lot of the left will be making sort of remarks that I've been uh, making and saying, oh, my group now has a chance to uh, recruit out there. Well, also what this generation has, like a lot of people, is an aversion, and I think a healthy aversion uh, to the sects, uh, to bureaucratic uh, centralism, uh, you know, to the idea that you cannot voice differences in the open. Uh, you cannot think that all you need to do is um, accept the line of the uh, leadership. Um, and we aren't going to easily uh, overcome the idea, oh, well, we'll, we are different. It's going to be a hard battle. It's going to be a long uh, uh, battle. And in our view, it's still the case that we've got to go through the existing left. But clearly, uh, there is a big change. And it, it's similar in that sense uh, to what we saw in the United States around Bernie Sanders. And I'm not saying that the Democratic Socialists of America are the answer. Nonetheless, at least it's organized large numbers of these people. Uh, we need to organize these people. We need to go 
beyond merely click politics or the politics of um, protest, which are all healthy. You know, clicking for Jeremy Corbyn is better than not clicking uh, for Jeremy Corbyn. We've got to go beyond that. We need organization. And what we are putting forward is the idea of a communist party, a mass communist party uh, that believes in debate, views debate as healthy, uh, not as a heresy, um, uh, 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 and recognizes uh, that our struggle um, isn't just about this little part uh, of the world, uh, but it's a global struggle that needs global answers. And I, I think that precisely, um, you know, those that are taking part and will be taking part in the demonstrations up in Glasgow uh, later this year in November around the government ministers uh, meeting about global climate. These people are clearly receptive to that sort of idea. They recognize, they're not stupid, they're well recognized that merely marching up and down or gluing yourself to a train or, or whatever isn't enough. It's something, but it isn't enough. And the, the role of the left is precisely to provide answers. And the answer isn't um, um, the sectism, uh, the irrationality of the left that we are present at present burdened with. That's it.